Welcome to another episode of Hemp Barons. I'm Dan Humiston, and today's Hemp Baron arrived in hemp by accident. In the midst of his very successful political career, this Kentucky attorney wrote a hemp-supporting article which sparked a cascade of events propelling him to a leadership role within the hemp movement. Let's join Joy's conversation with Jonathan Miller from the U.S. Hemp Roundtable. Well, hello, Jonathan, and thank you for being with us on Hemp Errands today. Great to be with you, Joy. I get the privilege of working with you on so many projects uh, to advance the hemp industry, to set standards and ethics, to organize the community, to educate. And, and most importantly, uh, and closest to my heart, of course, is to advocate. So I want to first tell our listeners that Jonathan Miller is the uh, managing partner for the largest law firm in Kentucky, Frost Brown Todd, a Harvard man uh, who we're so lucky to have in hemp. And uh, he's also the former treasurer for the state of Kentucky and also the former head of the Democratic Party. Is that correct, Jonathan, for the state of Kentucky? That is right. I held that job for four months, and I tell people that if I ever uh, get really sick, I'll take that job again because it was the longest four months of my life. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, and always with humor, which is just and so needed when things get heated and tense, as they often do in, in any movement or in any revolution, particularly one of the scope of the promising, valuable, and versatile hemp plant. We're dealing with an industrial revolution, a political revolution agricultural and public health revolution. And I, I just can't think of anyone better to be going through it with. So tell us, of course, how on earth a guy like you found himself brought in by the powerful hemp plant. How did this occur? Yeah, it really is a funny story, but it's it's sort of an illustration of, of uh, the change that we've seen over the last six, seven years in, in support for hemp and for products like CBD. I never really engaged on this issue for most of my life, for my entire political career. It just wasn't anything that was on my radar screen. And, and like most politicians in my conservative Kentucky, I took the easy route and said, OK, I'm going to be against cannabis because, you know, I didn't really know much about it. And it was it was a safe position. But there was a, a gentleman who um, had been uh, running for office for for 20 years. He ran for, I think, 12 12 times, never won. His, his name was Gatewood Galbraith. And one of the reasons he never won was because he was really a proud supporter of the legalization of, of all forms of cannabis. And uh, in a conservative yeah. state, it didn't help. And he sort of got pigeonholed as, as the, the marijuana guy. Well, he passed away about seven years ago. And, and I, as a tribute to him, I took a look at his issue and I realized that he was right. So I wrote an article for the uh, Daily Beast and said, that Gatewood was right, and in his honor, we should legalize cannabis. So I got a call from the Lexington Herald Leader, my local paper, and they asked me, well, we're doing a series on hemp. Looks like you're from marijuana, so will you uh, write something in support of hemp? And I said, well, I don't really know the difference between hemp and marijuana, but I'll be happy to look into it and, and write something. I, I did. I, I really not only discovered the difference, but Kentucky has a rich centuries-long history with the crop. Henry, Henry Clay was a hemp farmer, and, and we were the center of hemp production for two centuries. Uh, so I wrote that piece. That piece was noticed by our commissioner of agriculture, Jamie Comer. He just had run a campaign wanting to bring hemp to Kentucky. And he said, will you help me out? 
And I said, sure, well, you know, got nothing to lose. We're not going to win, but happy to help. And my God, after six months of, of education and traveling the state, the bill that we proposed passed both houses and uh, almost unanimously in Kentucky. Mitch McConnell took notice. He became a hemp supporter after being opposed. And that launched uh, my career. So I went from zero to a thousand uh, in, in a few months, having nothing to do with hemp to now it being my entire career. Well, I'm going to say zero to hero. And if that isn't a testament to, and we're watching it happen all over, Jonathan, to the power of well-informed people being very, they can change their mind. You changed your mind. And we're watching people change their minds as they get information. They say, of course, the truth passes through three stages. First, it is violently opposed, then it is ridiculed, then it is accepted as becoming self-evident. And here uh, we see that work. You know, of course, you're well familiar with my history. I've been involved with hemp for nearly 30 years. And of course, Gatewood Galbraith was a hero in those early days. And I recall very vividly when he died and what that meant to the movement. And this is actually the first time I've heard that story, Jonathan. So I'm a little emotional at the moment because I didn't realize that connection. And I didn't know that that Gatewood was actually the impetus for your hearing the call of the plant and following up on it. And look what we have done. You then have this idea. I know you worked with a couple of organizations in hemp to learn as you were building your foundation. And then you have this idea for advocacy to get people together. My understanding is started in your basement. Will you tell us a little bit <laughs> about how the, U- the U.S. Hemp Roundtable, the most powerful advocacy organization in the history of the hemp movement, um, how did this occur? Yeah, and I want to emphasize that my basement is a lot uh, safer than the basement in Silence of the Lambs. I don't want to get people that it's the same idea. Um, but we, uh, as part of the effort that we were, I just mentioned, uh, of trying to get legislation passed in in uh, Kentucky and then work with Mitch McConnell uh, to what ultimately became the 2014 Farm Bill, uh, get the, that language passed, we realized that the hemp industry had already an amazing grassroots organization in the Hemp Industries Association. And, you know, the gold standard, kind of the grandfather of, of the hemp movement. But there was a need for a grass tops organization where companies that were wanting to seek legal change could come together, use their resources, and hire professional lobbyists, both in Washington and then ultimately across the country to get the laws passed that we needed to. So I found four companies in Kentucky, and we started what was called the Kentucky Hemp Industry Council. But that just slowly, and each of them pitched in five grand. So we had a $20,000 budget that first year, and it just slowly grew. It got to the point in 2017 where the last majority of our companies were not in Kentucky. And we, you know, we wanted to focus on the federal level. So we reconstituted as the U.S. Hemp Roundtable. Uh, and uh, now that has grown to over 85 companies and organizations. Our budget is over $1.5 million. And uh, it's allowed us not only to help get things like the 2018 Farm Bill passed and help represent the industry with the FDA and other and USDA up in Washington, but also we've been able to hire lobbyists in about 15 states to seek passage of legislation there. And we're successful in Florida and Texas, Ohio, among among other states. So we still got a long ways to go. And we've got, of course, that FDA issue looming over us, but 
you know, together, the USM Roundtable and the HIA really makes a tremendous grass tops grassroots team to represent the industry. Well, I know that as president of the Hemp Industries Association, and of course, as you are well familiar, we formed a that 501c6 nonprofit trade association in 1994. And we knew that as things got really real, the 2014 Farm Bill in particular, um, we now are getting a seat at the table here. And we need big guns. We need lawyers. We need resources. If we're so, so getting federally legalizing hemp, which of course is not the same as hemp being legal in all 50 states, even under the 2014 Farm Bill, of course, hemp was legalized in terms of agricultural pilot programs based on licensing through state departments for those states who chose to take advantage of that privilege and that right and, and pass legislation on their state basis, as well as, of course, institutions of higher learning. But the marathon all of the underlying movement that brought us to that place, folks thought, oh, we've made it. No, now we're just getting started. And the fact is the marathon really begins now. And so to have someone of your intelligence, someone of your experience and all of the resources and assets that, that you bring in terms of uh, your connections, uh, the support staff, and really the collaborative spirit that you must have learned. I don't, I, and I'd like to actually talk a little bit about that, Jonathan. I often describe you as the most collaborative activist in the history of the hemp movement. And, and I'm going back 30 years now. So when I say that, I don't say that lightly. Is it because of your political background that you learned to take in the voices of everybody um, and, and distill them and moderate them and work through them? Is it through your politics or was it something else? Was it younger in school? What, what has brought this gift to us? Where did it come from? Thank you for applying this. I just, uh, for, for your compliment, I just, I, I, I really learned the value of teamwork as a leader from a really early age. My, my first election, I was elected to my Temple Youth Group in Lexington and, and ultimately became the national president of uh, the what was what's called the North American Federation of Temple Youth NIFTY, which is the reform movement's uh, Jewish organization. I, I really learned so much about the uh, importance of not only collaboration, but of lifting up voices from, from every level of the organization. And, uh, and I took that my next position. I was national director for Al Gore's uh, presidential campaign. And, and, and that led to a career in staff politics and then ultimately in, in my own politics. But, you know, my, my biggest belief in politics is the value of bipartisanship. And, and uh, I am a very uh, proud liberal Democrat. And my views are, are very strong about the need for democratic leadership. I'll be supporting uh, whoever runs against the president this year. But I am from my youngest in politics, I've really understood that the desperate need to work across the aisle and have been able to develop a, a really wonderful relationship with Mitch McConnell and his staff. And, you know, I disagree with Mitch McConnell on a lot of big issues, but we agree on hemp and we put aside those other issues and, and uh, work together really, really well. And I go, I joke that uh, if you had told me 10 years ago that I was going to be a hemp lawyer, I would have laughed at you. If you had told me 10 years ago that I was going to be going around the country praising Mitch McConnell, I would have kicked you out of the office. But that's what happens. <laughs> and, and it is 
Democrats, Republicans, grassroots, grass tops, it's the only way that we're going to work. And I, I'm, I'm optimistic that we're in a really difficult period for a country in terms of polarization. I, I, I still am optimistic that, that we can pass that. I think the next generation is believes in collaboration and bipartisanship. But, um, but you know, I, hemp is a testament that when you put aside party labels, uh, you put aside your own personal interests, that we can get things done and get them done quickly. And so beautiful. And I used to always attribute this and say, Jonathan Miller coined this phrase, and sometimes I don't always get it in there anymore because it's become such a part of my vernacular. And that is, you've made up the phrase, you may have 99 problems with Mitch McConnell, but hemp ain't one. A nod <laughs> to a popular rap song. And thank you for that, because I, as you know, even though I'm a senior paralegal, who's been in hemp for so very long, but also has raised two boys through college. They're now 25 and 27. And I did that by being a compliance and complex civil litigation paralegal in very high-end firms on the West Coast. And so sometimes so most of my clients are lawyers. I teach continuing legal education seminars and I'm going on and on with this academic stuff. And that phrase really helps break up the room and get a laugh and release tension. And so thank you for you may have 99 problems with Mitch McConnell, but hemp ain't one. And it sure ain't. Jay-Z stole that for me, so I'll be suing him later. Yeah. <laughs> so you formed then a 50124 advocacy organization, dovetailing so beautifully with the HIA. And I'm very proud, of course, as my as my role as regulatory officer and industry liaison for a Lixinol, a hemp extract company in over 40 countries. I have the privilege of serving not only on the board of the U.S. Hemp Roundtable, but also as an executive vice president. And, and the website to the U.S. Hemp Roundtable is hempsupporter.com. So people, please go to hempsupporter.com, either from your phone or tablet or the laptop you're on or this evening, as soon as you can get to one. And just sign up for the newsletter because those voices that we gather when we need these calls to action it's amazing as the FDA, of course, not only do we have issues around in three states, actually, South Dakota, Idaho, and Mississippi that have passed no hemp laws, and New Hampshire, of course, that hasn't actually passed a lot of put seeds in the ground, along with the very many other states, our 46 other states, some of which already have wonderful, robust programs that need very little tweaking, and others that are going to require tweaking in the next several legislative sessions and regulatory sessions as the various climates and those various cultures come to be, there are immediate action calls that are launched through the roundtable, through hempsupporter.com. And on top of that, and these are the things that fascinate me, and my background in law allows me, I think, to appreciate the work that you do on, on a whole nother level. So even something such as when, when the Farm Bill was signed 2018 this year, December 20th of 2018, of course, hemp was finally removed from the Controlled Substances Act and took its reclaimed, really, its place in the broad light of day among America's other agricultural crops in the 1946 Agricultural Marketing Act. Now, you researched, or perhaps you had a team of associates or one or two, researched the different states that actually had caveats in their own state uniform Controlled Substances Act. And so the listeners, out there, no, we don't just have a Federal Controlled Substances Act. Basically, each state also has their own Controlled Substances Act or their own listing and ways of dealing with that. It's, it's interesting. But many of them had caveats 
buried within their statute that said if there is a scheduling change at the federal level, it will automatically be made at the state level. And I'll be darned if you didn't take the power of your law degree and the, and all of the resources and, and influence that that brings and send letters to every single one of those. I don't know if it was the state attorney general. I'm going to let you answer that question in a second and reminded them here in your statute at blah, blah, section, blah, blah. Your statute says that if there's a scheduling change at the federal level, it needs to automatically change at the state level. And we're here to tell you that there's been a scheduling change. Can you tell us a little bit about that? We've been working on state lobbying for some time before the Farm Bill passed. And so we're, we're familiar with what the very states have on in terms of the Controlled Substances Act. Obviously, 20, 30 years ago, there um, was some sort of effort to spread around a model Controlled Substances Act that uh, a whole lot of states adopted. Many of them made alterations to them, but you know, it was, it was kind of the default for, for many states. And within that model act, uh, there was often language, there was language that had either a automatic descheduling when it was descheduled on a federal level, or it authorized um, a state official to deschedule once it's descheduled on the federal level. So we, we found all that, you know, we, I think we copied the attorneys general on, on all of these letters, but generally there was a agency official who would be under statute responsible for making such change. And, and we had some good response. Uh, we had some states uh, say, no, we disagree with you. And then we had some states ignore us. But the first big victory was in, in Texas, where the Texas health commissioner said, oh, you're right. And now hemp is no longer controlled substance. And this is before Texas passed their own law. I think it really helped us lay the groundwork for Texas passing the law, which is one of the better ones in the country. It, absolutely. That was unanimous. And apparently, was it or was there only one or two dissents in the legislature? You have to refresh my memory. I know Wendy Foster and, and Coleman Helpo both told me something historical, like the Texas state legislature has not agreed on that uniform level in years and years. Do yeah, you remember no, that stat or something similar? I, I don't remember the numbers, but I can tell you that every state we've been into has either been unanimous or just two or three votes against us. I mean, Ohio and Florida and Texas and California, all the way up to our the, the difficulties we've had over the last, we've been going through every committee unanimously, every floor nearly unanimously. And, and again, it's just a testament to the bipartisan support for this issue. Once people understand the plant and the difference between hemp and marijuana that, uh, and the value of it to, to farmers, uh, it becomes a no-brainer for so many politicians of both parties. So, and then we get into the nitty-gritty of it at here, that on December 20th, when this historical Farm Bill of 2018 passed, making hemp an agricultural commodity for commercial crops and directing the USDA to create a program, which, of course, they're in the process of creating now. On that same day, former SDA Commissioner Gottlieb announced it is a violation of federal law to market CBD as a dietary supplement and a food. Now, those of us who had been involved and are deeply involved in the hemp extract or hemp CBD industries, that was nothing new to us. The SDA had been saying that for some nearly four years at the time through their FAQ on their website. And so it wasn't news to us, but apparently it was a revelation of sorts to a smattering of agencies from local city departments and city attorneys and police chiefs 
to state attorney generals and state departments of health and state departments of ag and everything in between of various levels of jurisdiction. And so we start to see this reaction. And we're, in fact, still seeing it today uh, where where these states are saying, oh, my goodness, what have we done? We, we've got all this CBD being sold as a dietary supplement or in food and beverage products. And as it turns out, the FDA says it's illegal. It's a violation of federal law when the reality is. And, and, and I'm going to let you as the attorney, even though you know I speak about this ad nauseum, could you just give a synopsis for folks of Section 201-FF-3B, the IND, Investigational New Drug Preclusion, and really what our informed legal opinion is, thanks to you and an army of lawyers, as to true legal impact of such guidance, this guidance position that folks are incorrectly categorizing as the law. So to try to boil it down into, into layman's terms, there is a, under federal law a procedure where if someone, and in this case, it was GW Pharma, a, a, a British-based pharmaceutical company, comes up with a new product, a new drug for the investigational part of the FDA's jurisdiction that companies, other companies cannot sell those products, introduce them into interstate commerce, unless those products had been already marketed as nutritional supplements, dietary supplements, prior to the filing of these investigational documents. We believe that GW Pharma's entry into this came after CBD had been marketed as nutritional supplements across the globe, and that the trigger for prohibiting the sale of others, prohibiting others to sell CBD was not reached at the right point. So if this went to litigation and the FDA tried to issue enforcement actions based on this policy, we would sue. And because we think we are in the right legal framework. However, the FDA has never done that. They have never issued a formal regulation or formal rule that says that CBD cannot be marketed as a dietary supplement or a food additive. They have said that online. They have said that in speeches. That is their policy. But that is not a final regulation. It is not a matter of the law. And so we believe that in that context, uh, CBD can continue to be sold as a nutritional supplement, if the FDA ever stepped in, that we would, uh, we would fight that. The, the good news is the FDA has um, not only never issued an enforcement action against the sale of CBD, unless those companies are making uh, false marketing claims or medical claims, which is, we applaud them for that. And as you know, most of your listeners know, the FDA has put itself on a quick path to come up with a final regulatory structure that would allow for the sale of CBD. And we're, we're very hopeful that in the next several weeks, there'll be some real developments that we can uh, be excited about. But at this point, CBD is being sold, and as you know, all across the country. And we believe that it is not a violation of federal law for, for the reasons I just stated. And as these reactions, which I've come to categorize as what I call lions and tigers and bears, oh my, as these, this domino cascading effect um, of these statements put forth by the FDA. And so whether it's on the FDA's press you know, website, whether it's a press release, whether it's a guidance position or something that the former or current commissioner or any number of uh, representatives from FDA state publicly, it doesn't make it the law. They have not issued a final agency action yet. And when they do, if they do, 
I, I don't actually think they will. But if they did, we would respond to it. We would appeal and continue to utilize everything that we have within the Administrative Procedures Act to protect our legal standing and, God forbid, have to take it you know, to the judicial branch. And as you're familiar, uh, the Hemp Industries Association has sued the DEA four times since our inception in 1994, arguably one, three and a half times. But we have to preserve legal standing in order to do that. And in one of our cases, of course, we, we learned that the hard way. So that's never going to happen again. Now, as though these, this cascade of reaction, which results in a taking away of the ability to sell CBD on the book at the retail level lawfully, the roundtable immediately responds and steps in. Now, I know that we have a budget for lobbying. We, meaning the USM Roundtable, again, such a privilege to serve on that board, a budget every year for lobbying. And as is your practice, we have a vote on which states are going to get the paid lobbyists. They don't work for free. And then we deploy them. But we have to react when different jurisdictions and different levels uh, and different states, even outside of the legislative session, make decisions that are not sensible and that are not in the best interest of not only the hemp industry, but in the American consumer who is clearly demanding property, this hemp extract or this molecule at minimum within it that has so much promise and that is solving so many problems for folks who are suffering from, you know, occasional sleeplessness, nervousness, pain from exercise and so on and so forth. And you yourself go in. Letters are written. And the next thing we know, Jonathan is in Ohio. Jonathan is in Oklahoma. You spend a lot of time on planes responding to these crises, do you not? Yeah, I uh, really, this year, my frequent flyer mileage is it's just hitting the roof. On Delta, my medallion status has been terrific. And my wife hasn't decided to kill me yet for traveling so much. So it, it, it's been a very busy year. Uh, and next year, I imagine, will be as busy as well because we still have a number of states, like you mentioned, South Dakota, Idaho, and Mississippi still not having hemp legalized. And battles in states like California and Iowa and others over the legality of, of hemp-derived CBD. So, but uh, I enjoy it. And it's, uh, again, having been in politics and generally most partisan issues, at least finding half the people, you know, on the other side disagreeing with you, it's, it's such a, a wonderful feeling to go into a room and, and having nearly everyone agree with you and, and those that don't being able to explain to them in ways that often get them to change their minds. And, and a quick nod to, to Lisa, when you introduced me to your wife, I very clearly recall you saying she is a saint. <laughs> and indeed, she is just to, to, to support the work that you do. Uh, we have very little time left, and I know you and I are both at, a, at the same event today, and we've got crazy schedules. So before I ask you my final question, I just want to make sure the listeners know, give it a one-two punch. We have many members who are crossover but the Hemp Industries Association, again, formed in 1994. Go to joinhemp.org. That's joinhemp.org to join the HIA. And please consider joining the U.S. Hemp Roundtable. And at minimum, please sign up for the newsletter at hempsupporter.com. That's hempsupporter.com. Now, the U.S. Hemp Roundtable seed funded the U.S. Hemp Authority, which has created and so needed in the marketplace a third-party independently verified seal that would show the consumer and law enforcement through this rigorous auditing process, again, a third-party independent auditing process, a seal that says this product, this CBD product is quality assured, 
It's safe and it's sourced from legal hemp. Can you tell us a little bit about the U.S. Hemp Authority, which, by the way, is the USHempAuthority.org, Jonathan, in the little time we have left there. <laughs> yeah, no, it, I think this is really going to be, it, it has become and will be one of the, if not the most critical um, efforts in the hemp space. We, we recognized early on that every industry um, needs to have high quality standards and, and uses best practices and, and, and demonstrates uh, the difference between the good actors and the bad actors in the industry. But, but for hemp, it's even more important because we do still have the confusion with marijuana and, and with CBD. We have, frankly, a lot of bad actors out there selling products that aren't CBD or that have high toxic chemicals in them or, or that uh, are um, making uh, claims that are, are not proven. And so we helped set up the U.S. Hemp Authority, which um, um, now um, has, sets those standards and um, allows uh, um, companies who want to meet those standards to go through a third-party independent audit. Uh, and if they, if they pass that, uh, then they can be uh, put a seal of certification on their products that uh, indicate to consumers that the products are safe and to law enforcement that the products are legal. And uh, so far, we've had 23 companies win that certification. We've got many dozens other in the pipeline. And uh, let me uh, encourage folks in your audience who have products so that they want to demonstrate to consumers uh, are safe and that they're legal to go to ushempauthority.org to uh, see how you can get certified. And, and importantly, we're going through a process of always a process improvement going through the version 2.0 of our guidance plan of all of our standards and practices, uh, and that we're asking for public comment. So uh, go to ushempauthority.org and, and take a look at our draft plan and let us know what you think about it, because uh, uh, we can only improve things if we have both the complete input as well as the complete buy-in of the industry. Exactly. And that's ushempauthority.org. And then click the request comment tab. And, and please do it quickly. We've widely announce this, the industry and all of the industry partners and industry coalition, but that comment period after having been open since July is closing in two days. Uh, and of course, now my understanding is there are entire retail chains that, chains that are coming to us and saying, we only want, there's so much confusion in the marketplace. We only want to sell products that carry uh, that seal. So really it, it, it faces the consumer. It shows the consumer. Um, that we're, we're talking about a quality assured again and, uh, and safe product, which I just think is so important. Jonathan, it is such an honor and a privilege to do this, this work with you. For me, it's my life work. It's my life purpose. Um, and so to be able to go through this journey, uh, with such leadership and, and skills and diplomacy that you, uh, demonstrate and lead the way to, for everyone with, I, I just, words cannot express my gratitude to your commitment to this movement and your participation in it, brother. And may we be working together for many, many years to come. Thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Well, thank you. The feeling's mutual. We would never be where we are if it weren't for uh, Joy Beckerman. So your leadership has been an extraordinary light for the industry. And I'm just happy to, uh, to uh, hang out with you and uh, try to get some good stuff done. We make a heck of a team, and maybe I'll see you later today. Thank you again, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 
Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humiston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.